On the line, we have State Senator Rob Nose. Who no, did. don't promote me, Jefferson. I'm only a representative. Oh, I call you State Senator? You did. Okay, let's just start over. We'll just pretend this is <laughs> coming at <laughs> you recorded. The beauty of live radio. Coming at you with second takes. Coming at you live, State Representative Rob Nose, who handily won his race in House District 42 after facing his first, I think it's fair to say, strong challenger since you initially won, yes. the, initially won the seat in 2014. Rob, congratulations and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Were you ever scared scared during this race? Um, scared's a strong word, but I was certainly anxious and nervous. Um, Paige Kreisman was a very smart and credible opponent, and she really forced me to get out there and campaign and reintroduce myself to my voters and remind them about my record. And anytime you, um, you know, she garnered endorsements from folks that, uh, from organizations, unions that used to be supporters of mine. And so, you know, that was certainly a disappointment and made me anxious as well. But um, I think at the end of the day, I was able to remind voters of my record and that, you know, in spite of my vote to rein in the cost of PERS, I've been a progressive champion for lots of things that uh, working families in this area of the world care about. So You started to answer it already, but what did happen there? On Tuesday, the Oregonian headline said, Rob Nose defeats challenger for a southeast Portland seat after being abandoned by unions. You came from the labor movement. So I wasn't completely abandoned. I kept my own, the union that I work for, Oregon Nurses Association, stood by me. I also got the endorsement of the United Food and Commercial Workers. And I think, you know, having the support of um, two unions that are really on the front lines right now of what we're experiencing with COVID-19, um, those endorsements certainly didn't hurt my reelection, along with the Oregon League of Conservation Voters, Planned Parenthood, um, Basic Rights Oregon, you know, these are important organizations to voters in this district. And, you know, I, I hope to get back in the good graces of the, of the public sector labor movement. I care a lot about workers and the services that they provide. And, you know, hopefully now we can try to move on and get past it. So we're talking about uh, SEIU, OEA, AFSCME, and AFT. Uh, yes, yeah, so SEIU stayed out of the race. They just decided not to endorse or um, – so they never opposed me, but they never helped me either, unfortunately. And asked me put in a couple grand, but could have gone bigger. Uh, uh, OEA and AFT, what happened there? Well, so OEA actually provided the uh, largest contribution uh, to my opponent that she received. The Portland Association of Teachers uh, not only endorsed her, but donated – uh, $10,000 to her race. And we were talking to Joe Basler of AFSCME about Mark Hass's race and now Shamia Fagan's race. He was saying, listen, it wasn't yeah, all... Yeah, isn't that exciting, right? It's really interesting. That, it that, sure is. is that our support for uh, Shamia, our opposition to Mark Hass, wasn't just about the PERS vote. It was also about, you know, sort of a long-standing record of not knowing uh, where he stood on our issues. Uh, for you, do you think that uh, OEA and AFT and AFSCME going for Paige Kreisman was almost entirely about the PERS vote? That's what they pretty much intimated. I, I hope that was the case. Um, you know, and I, I understand the significance of that vote as a union person. You know, I've bargained retirement benefits in the private sector, so I, I get it. Um, I, think, I think that's the only 
um, anti-union votes, you know, in terms of the AFL-CIO scorecard or any other union scorecard that I've ever taken. And, you know, I could make an argument that that was a vote in some ways to stabilize that pension and save this, but we can save that for another day. Well, I don't know, because in another day we might want to be talking about other topics. So I think that's an interesting argument. Do you think that there was two... Uh, what do you think the right move for public labor would have been in this case? And and you have these options, right? You have well, the the oh, you have the uh, O N A option. It's really hard to say, Jefferson. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, um, the House Democrats, we think we um, put a bill in place that preserved the pension, um, put some cost saving measures in place allowed us to, you know, sort of amortize our debt, which is a fancy way of saying take out a longer mortgage on some of our long-term costs with Tier 1, Tier 2 employees. And then, yes, ask for a little bit of contribution from the 401K portion of public sector workforce's retirement benefit to shore up the pension so that the pension was protected. And we asked for more of a contribution from Tier 1, Tier 2 PERS employees because that pension is richer. And then once that is paid off, then we're back to a stable system that is a solid retirement benefit that will help us attract and retain a workforce and is still sustainable that the state and public sector entities will be able to afford. What happens now in terms of caucus dynamics and labor? Back in the day, presumably now as well, uh, you know, Tina would talk about uh, OEA, SAU, and AFSME, and, and maybe a lesser degree AFT back then, uh, as our partners. I mean, she would just say, oh, well, what do our partners think on this issue? What do our partners think on that issue? And it was very clear what that meant. Everybody knew what was uh, what was meant when she said that. What are the dynamics now after that first vote? I mean, it was one vote. It, it well, also yielded a billion think, dollars in revenue. Yeah. I think politically um, those folks are still our partners, at least, you know, ideologically, um, in terms of the things that that House Democrats care about. Whether or not they're going to help us in this next election cycle, I don't know yet. It's too early to say. But um, I think we're going to have some very tough choices about budgets and policy in light of COVID-19 and the recession. And if you go by stereotype that you believe that Democrats are more willing to try to raise taxes, and we may need to raise some taxes and fees to try to get through this recession, get folks that are still working financially okay to pay a little bit more so we have a social service safety net and schools funded, then hopefully the public sector labor movement will come back to Democrats, even those of us that took a, a vote they don't like on retirement, because they know by stereotype we'll support tax increases even in a recession uh, so that we can shore up our budgets and have the services we need. I will see. I appreciate you being willing to dwell on this a little bit because we want to help people really understand the dynamics in Salem, the dynamics that make public decisions. And the reality is that one of the ways, one of the main ways that Democrats were able to win uh, in so many swing districts, its primary funding base has been the very unions we're talking about. And so when you say, well, they're going to help go, going forward, usually the big money that OEA, AFSCME, uh, and SEIU puts in is after the primary, right? It's in the yes. it's in the general election to spend, you know, in, in swing districts uh, around the state, you know, spend upwards of, you know, half a million, million dollars. And, 
not to get off this subject, Jefferson, but like in terms of the election for uh, from Tuesday, one of the things that we're excited about as Democrats is that in a lot of the swing seats or even some you know more rural areas of the state, excluding Bend, I don't think of it as a rural area, but it is in Central Oregon. Democrats in primaries uh, got more vote, more Democrats voted than Republicans voted in their primaries. And so you see the potential with running good campaigns in the fall where we could keep our supermajority and maybe even expand it a little bit. Is there now, and it, I know it's going to be hard, it will be maybe speculation, and it might also be hard to answer, even if you did have formulated views, it might be hard to share some of those views. But now as you think about the dynamic going into this next session, into these budget cuts, when there's going to be people calling for whether it's furlough days, whether it's renegotiation of contracts, whatever is going to be pushed to uh, add to whatever revenue measures are put up, added to whatever borrowing is suggested, and added to whatever beggary is done very legitimately so from the federal government, there will be these questions about service cuts and around impacts to uh, public worker uh, pay and benefits or existence. And the do you think in those negotiations now there will be greater independence from the from the big partners uh, because you know there's some new members who you know Lori Wimmer lost to a doctor and she was a labor lobbyist. Uh, you were able to win despite opposition or or staying out from previous allies. Do you think there's greater independence now, or do you think there's going to be so many people who are looking to be the next Shamia, who are looking to uh, sort of reestablish their relationship that they'll that Democrats even go further in trying to uh, rebuild relationships with labor? Wow, you know that's a really good question. Um, I think I'm going to punt slightly and just say I think it's a little too early to say. So if we get money from the federal government like we keep we were trying to do if there's a fourth you know COVID-19 response from the feds if the economy is allowed to open back up and we and, and and in the fall we start being able to go to sporting events and go to bars and restaurants again and we don't see a resurgence of the virus during the flu season that overwhelms our hospital system then maybe our you know we'll still be in a recession but we won't be in one that is as bad as we're predicting right now, you know, here at the end of May. Um, and so I think, honestly, Jefferson, it's going to be a little bit like limping along to get along, and we'll be up and down all the time. And maybe, maybe public sector workers would rather take furlough days than pay cuts, right? And so preserve the long-term raises that have been bargained into the contract so that when we finally come out of this, wages and benefits are still basically intact. But we have, you know, service delays. I mean, those are just some of the things that could be on the table. But That's I, one of the I big questions. Be, Let's stick with that. Well, actually, finish your point. I didn't want to cut you well, off, but I do want to get back to that. You also have to remember, you know, Democrats, we care about services, and people need the services that government provides in times of economic crisis. So we will probably, you know, look to raise taxes and fees where it's appropriate to do so to preserve core services that we need to offer. We also have two reserve accounts that we didn't have when you were serving in the legislature. We, we set up... It's a big deal. Good leadership. your wisdom and others, you know, we have a rainy day fund for education and we have a rainy day fund basically for everything else. And both of those savings accounts 
have close, well, not quite a billion dollars, about three quarters of a billion dollars each in them that we can use to, to stave off cuts that we otherwise would have to make. And this is, I mean, now that we're through the election, the budget is going to be, uh, you know, the dominant political discussion in Oregon. I mean, you know, there's, of course, a November election, but it's the dominant political discussion in Oregon for the next couple of years, yeah? Well, if you, you know, so the state economists gave a very sobering uh, review of our finances uh, yesterday. So, you know, we're in the middle of the budget cycle right now. Um, if we didn't have, you know, couch cushions to look under and savings accounts, you know, we'd be looking at having to trim $2.7 billion out of the budget right now uh, in the middle of this biennium just for the current cycle that we're in. And then if the recession kind of lingers the way that they're projecting today, uh-oh, there? Yeah, I'm here. Go ahead. Some, okay. Um, and then if the recession lingers the way that they're projecting, we're looking at another, we're looking to short $5 billion in the next budget cycle. So we have, we could have deep challenges. That's a lot of money. To address those deep challenges, there are a bunch of moves, I suspect, all of them will be used to some measure. And the question will be, how much is one used in the other? I can think of at least five or six. That includes cuts to services themselves. That includes cuts to payer benefits. Cuts to services more like a furlough day. Cuts to pay and benefits is self-explanatory. That includes taxes. That includes borrowing. That includes begging the federal government. And that includes using reserves. Uh, one of the big tensions, it seems to me, is the question you already said is between furlough days. We'll just start doing four days. We'll do we'll do less work. There'll be fewer people. You know, there'll be less DMV to go to. There'll That's be right. le you know, home care workers. Maybe we'll take days off. There'll be just less services versus saying, no, no, take a little trim. And it seems pretty obvious where the uh, uh, where public labor is. Where do you think your colleagues are? Where are you on that kind of dynamic? I, I think we don't because we don't know the magnitude yet of what help we're going to get. I think Honestly, we don't know. Yeah. I would say stay tuned on all of that because it's just now getting started. So Wednesday was a big day. We know how bad it is. We've got the governor's sort of across-the-board cuts that we know we won't do. That's why the let switch will come into session so we can be more surgical and not just, uh, you know, make every agency, every department take a 17% cut in their budget. Um, and, the, and the legislature is the only uh, entity that can allocate money out of the reserves as well. And I suspect that we'll do some of that. And so I would just say, you know, let's check back in at the beginning of June when I think a little bit more of this starts to shake out when we know when we might have a special session. Looking at the legislature going forward, Mitch Green, like uh, you know, certainly I'm sure a dear friend of yours. Some, he some, was. He's like my best mentor. Somewhat, so many of us admired, I, I myself very much included, uh, Liz Kenny Geyer now retired. Uh, how do you see some of the caucus dynamic shifting going into the next session? Well, one thing that's going to be, I think, uh, very interesting, uh, a good change is that our legislature will now be um, more diverse uh, racially and ethnically. Um, last session, 2019, was the most diverse uh, uh, Democratic caucus that we've ever had. And with the election of uh, Wednesday Campos, um, Ricky Ruiz, um, and I believe one other person of color got elected in a primary, or a confam. Confam, yeah, confam. Uh, this only adds to the diversity of the House Democratic caucus. And I think um, that will be um, an important 
uh, change because we know the pandemic is going to sort of drive a lot of the political discussion and we know that there were racial and economic disparities that were already bad um, prior to the pandemic and those the 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 folks of color in our caucus are really coalescing trying to figure out how that we come out of the pandemic with a society that's more focused on equity. And I think that will be a big change and a big dynamic, uh, at least for the House Democrats uh, going into 2021. We're going to see a lot more uh, emphasis on equity and inclusion, and the political capital try to make that happen actually will be there. Do you see key issues where sort of an equity lens will be applied to push specific policies? Well, certainly in healthcare, because we know that uh, COVID-19 is affecting uh, folks of color more so than it is the European Caucasian communities in our state. Um, and I think, you know, the housing crisis was still uh, in front of us and bad before things got, st before COVID-19, and it's only going to get worse. And, and one of the ways that we can uh, help mitigate uh, racism in this state is make it so that uh, folks of color, immigrant families have access to capital so they can start businesses and purchase homes. That's how uh, European Americans in the 40s and 50s and 60s accumulated wealth. And I think we'll be trying to figure out how we can make that easier for um, folks of color in this state. So that generational wealth is created. You, your voice lit up when I brought up the Secretary of State's race, and we went to bed on Tuesday night with the Oregonian calling it for calling it prematurely for uh, Mark Hass, and we went to bed last night with the Oregonian calling it for Shavia Fagan. Uh, what were some of your reflections on the Secretary of State's race? Well, it's funny because I feel like my reflections were wrong. Um, you know, I was tempted to say on Wednesday, had you called me, I would have said, you know, perhaps having two women in the race. Uh, is what made it hard for Shamia to get across the finish line. If there'd only been, you know, her versus Mark, that would have made it a little bit, the dynamic more different. Um, would it have been a signal that um, the public sector labor movement's, you know, strong investment in Shamia's candidacy ended up being a negative if the public had a negative reaction to that? But I think everything has changed. Uh, this morning. And so that whole analysis that I was engaging in 24 hours ago doesn't seem to make any sense. Um, yeah, you change a few you know, thousand votes and all of a sudden it feels like all the physics has changed. The physics might be somewhat similar, it's just, you know, where the floor was is different. I mean, you know, I, um, Shmia and Mark Hass are both friends of mine. Um, I think either one of them uh, would have made a fine we'll make a fine candidate uh, to go up against Kim Thatcher uh, in the November election. Um, I've worked with both those people. I don't know Jamie McLeod Skinner as well. She did concede the race, so she's, she's not in it at this point. I mean, um, you know, and she would have been an interesting candidate. I mean, I think part of, for me, um, what I like about either a Fagan or a Haas uh, candidacy going forward is because I think having some experience in Salem is pretty important in that role and we all know that the Secretary of State in Oregon is Lieutenant Governor. Do you buy into any of the scuttlebutt that Kate Brown might be shuffling off prior to the end of her term and therefore the next Secretary of State is likely to be the next Governor? Um, 
You know, Governor Brown and I visit periodically, but we've never talked about that, so I couldn't even begin to speculate. So far, I have I have found who I believe might be rumor starters on both rumors, and so one was running for the U.S. Senate, the other was Secretary of the Interior, and so I don't I, I tend to think more rumor than more smoke than fire, but I, you know what the heck do I know? I mean, you know, she's she, she's turned out as governor; she can't run again, right? Um, you know. Would it be an exciting challenge? She's still pretty young, um, you know, to run a big um, department under a Democratic president. You know, maybe, maybe she'd like to be an ambassador. I don't know. We have never, her and I have never speculated about what she does next after being governor. And I suspect if you got her on your show right now, she'd say it's all COVID-19 all the time. And she's not really focused on that super much right now. Campaign finance reform has been in the news for now, you know, well over a year. Supreme Court made its decision saying it's allowed now. The legislature will be facing at least in some way, even if decide not to face it. Uh, it is more in uh, the issue might be in more high relief now, not only with what happened with the Portland uh, Portland mayor's race, uh, but also what happened with that secretary of state's race where Shamia got, what, three quarters of a million dollars from three or four organizations. Uh, to to eke out the win over Mark Hass in Democratic primary. Uh, the key question there, one key question is anything will be able to happen in this session. Another key question is... Yes. we. I mean, assuming the constitutional measure that's on the ballot in November passes, um, we will pass some sort of campaign finance reform limitation of some kind, I would say, in the 2021 session. The, the potential bad news about that is so much... Uh, it, is if you do a crappy bill, I don't mean you, but if a crappy bill is yeah, if a crappy bill is done, it makes it a lot harder to do a better bill, right? And passing something at the ballot, heck, the last thing that the last thing that was on the ballot that was a statute, even though it's oh, received some criticism, right, 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 right. that that um, all that also passed. Yeah. And so the question is, how do you make sure it's a great bill? And for you, what's the definition of a great bill? Does it mean unlimited well, contributions here, to labor? This is this would be a fun topic for another conversation, Jefferson, like a different time on your show. But um, I, being an elected official who's been in office for quite a while, I take a little bit more of a nuanced view about campaign finance reform because you're not really going to get money out of politics. Um, our United States Supreme Court has really made that abundantly clear. And so the challenge is if you have limits that are too low, too strong, um, then entities that have money, um, they'll just spend it independently of your campaign. And maybe you and I make an agreement that we're not going to be, we're not going to negatively campaign. You know, you're not going to bring up my, uh, you know, prior DUI in my youth, okay? And, um, but, but our, my, your supporters don't care about that, you know, or they make a decision that they're going to reveal that anyway because they know it's good, it's good fodder, and it'll make it so that you, you know, have a better chance of winning your election. So that's part of our challenge with campaign finance reform: is how do we do it in a way that people that can spend their money independently of campaigns don't feel incentivized to do so, and so that campaigns still retain some control of their message and how they want to run. It's very tricky. It is really tricky. I agree that it's really tricky. And one of the things I wrestle with 
is whether and it's sort of like would you rather the that ally sort of be in the tent coordinating or out of the tent doing what they do one argument potentially for having them out of the tent is maybe they don't have quite as much expectation to be inside the tent when a decision is being made that would benefit their them financially yeah it seems really esoteric no, I, uh, let, let me make it less esoteric. If you're coordinating all the time, and we know right now that the folks who run the campaigns, who kick in the dough, really like being in the room. And they like being in the room not only so they, they can make campaign decisions, they like to be in the room so that the candidates are in the habit of listening to them, so the candidates are in the habit of saying yes to what they say. If they're not in the room, I think it might change that dynamic at least a little bit. Yeah. But if I know that somebody has donated a ton of money on the side to help get me across the table, even if I didn't coordinate that with them, I still know it. We also, though, and it'd be good to look at that. I'd be interested in looking at that and maybe sharing it back and forth because we also know that expenditures, I mean, our races are, in fact, more expensive than other states, even if you include independent expenditures. So it's not yeah. like when, when, I mean, I would say that the donor does think they're getting some value, giving it to the candidate that they see is more valuable than just spending independently. There's some people who spend independently, but that ability to go to you and say, hey, here's a check. They like the idea of handing you that check because they like the relationship that builds. They like the access they think that earns because we know that spending in other states is less than in ours. Yeah. Well, yeah, other states have contribution limits. So contribution limits will matter. Yes, absolutely. Do you think one of the challenges, and, and very often the move then is, well, okay, you put in some limits, and one of the reasons to put in limits is to make it more fundable, more affordable to be able to put in public finance. If we're having this discussion in the middle of a global pandemic, do you think there's any possibility of having a discussion of publicly financed elections? No. Yeah. I mean, honestly, Jefferson, like if I have a choice of saying, here's $10 million, or actually, you know, probably it's more like 20 or $30 million for publicly financed election, some hybrid of you have to solicit donations and you get a match, okay? Or $30 million that I can use to keep tuition low yeah. or make sure that buildings get cleaned and the janitors that are doing that work have health insurance in this climate, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose that. Well, that will be the debate to come. Anything I should have asked you that I didn't? Oh, I'm sure there is. <laughs> <laughs> I, hope we, uh, I hope we will get a chance to talk. Go ahead, go ahead. It'll be interesting to see if we do any policy uh, in the special session. Oh, I need to ask you about that. We just stick to budget. Oh, I need to ask you about that. Has a has a date been? Do you have a scuttlebutt on when no, the date's going to be? No, yeah. that's that's being hotly uh, negotiated between the governor and the Senate president and the speaker. What's so the range? What's the time range, as far as you know? Well, I think the governor wants to, us to, the the budget committee to examine what across the board cuts would look like, and then have a sort of working plan that she can sort of hear about and review. And so I think. You know, I'm hoping mid-June. Rob Nose, thank you so much for coming on. I hope, as you yeah, said... Yeah, anytime. When, yeah, when things clarify, we'll have a chance to do it again. Okay. Thanks for having me, Jefferson. State Representative Nose, congratulations and thanks for your service. Okay.